Now, Christmas time 2014, um, some family friends gave our son Seth uh, a betta fish for Christmas, one of those fighting fish. And so Seth was in love with this, with this fish because it was his first pet. And so he affectionately named the fish uh, Batman. And so Shannon and I at the time, though, were saying to one another, this, this fish is not going to last very long. One, it's a fish. But we were living in a rented house at the time. And like it was not well insulated. It was always cold. You'd, you'd turn up the heat and you're only heating up the outdoors. It just stayed the same temperature in the house constantly. It was just always cold. And so we're thinking this, this fish is just going to freeze to death. It's not going to live. Now, to our surprise, the fish was resilient. It lived for over a year. Now, just after that year, Mark, Shannon and I were going away. So we asked Seth's um, grandparents to watch the, watch the fish while we were away. And I, I don't want to point fingers, but the fish took a turn for the worse during that week and, and, and passed away shortly thereafter. And so Shannon and I are going like, well, this is great. Now we've got to explain to our four-year-old um, death. And so we're, we're waiting for the right moment to do this, and we want to do it in a way that's not going to scar him or mess him up or anything like that. So waiting for the opportunity. Now, one morning, Seth and I were eating breakfast, and he, he noticed that we hadn't fed the fish before breakfast like we usually did, and we hadn't done that for quite a few days. And so he asked me, um, Daddy, where's Batman? And I said, he lives in Gotham City. Now, I knew the actual question, but I was just trying to buy myself some time to come up with a better answer for his real question. He goes, well, no, I mean my fish. And so I I go on to explain, well, buddy, sometimes animals and people, they get old or they get sick and and they die. They, They pass away. And I'm trying to do this again, not scar them, but pass on some truths, but also give some hope and go and like, but this is what God does for us in Jesus. Here's some theology, son. Um, Age four, I hope you can grasp it. But uh, he sat there for a moment after I I, I explained all this and I'm going, okay, what's coming next? I could tell he's thinking. He says, daddy, and I go, what buddy? Do you know what? What bud? I've always wanted a dog. And like, it's just like he didn't mourn over the fish at all, no tears. He got over it really quick and he was like trying to manipulate me in that moment. I'm like, if you can convince your mother, we'll do it. We still don't have a dog. Um, Now, have you ever had to break bad news to somebody and you're not sure how they're going to take it? You hope they'll, they'll take it and receive it well, but you might be just kind of turning the world upside down. In the verses we're going to be looking at today as we wrap up our our series in Philippians, I feel like I'm kind of doing that in some ways because we're going to talk about um, two verses that that tend to be people's favorite verses. And these, um, they don't necessarily mean what we may think they mean or what we may want them to mean. Now, we love these verses. They're verses we'll slap on a coffee mug, we'll put it on the bumper sticker, maybe you do needlework or something like that. You put it in a frame, hang it up. Some people get the scripture reference tattooed on them. Um, you highlight it in your Bible. You memorize it. These, these are verses we love. And, and they are good verses. Um, they're, they're full of potential and promise. And I'm, I'm just going to give you a heads up. It, it might seem like bad news that these verses don't mean what you've always thought they mean or what you may want them to mean. But it's actually far better news what they do mean. And so we're going to jump in, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And Paul is writing, he says, 
I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphrodite the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now you may know what verses I'm talking about. And before we even kind of dive in and unpack those verses, I just want to give a bit of the context in which Paul is writing in. And context is huge when we're going to um, read and understand what a verse means. Now Paul has made it clear that the Philippians are a very generous church. This is the point in his, <clears throat> excuse me, in his letter where he's thanking the Philippians for their most recent gifts. Uh, a large sum of money but also sending the money along with their minister, Epaphroditus, who's not just dropping the gift off, but he's staying there to minister to Paul's needs, to help him out in that time. And so, um, in your Bible, the title of this section might be uh, Paul's Thanks for Their Gifts, or something like that. Now, the odd thing is, while Paul's expressing gratitude in this section, you won't find the words, thank you, in it anywhere. And it seems odd, especially when you consider the Philippians' gift-giving to Paul, um, and also the ways they've given to support and grow the kingdom of God. Ten years previous to writing this letter, Paul had started the church in Philippi. He planted it. And as Paul's leaving to preach the gospel in other parts of Macedonia, these brand new Christians take up a collection and they give it to Paul to help him in these efforts as he goes to spread the gospel. While he's in Thessalonica, the Philippians had sent gifts to Paul at least twice. I mean, they were such a generous church that their generosity became known to other churches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-4, through 4, you can see the Philippians had also given beyond their means to help the poor Christians in the area of Judea. And, and Paul took those gifts for them to those Christians in that area. Now in verse 10, where we started, it says... Um, you finally renewed your concern for me. And it may seem like Paul is being ungrateful, impatient, or even entitled, but that's not the case. The Philippians had, had not forgotten Paul, far from it. Um, but, but Paul, during that time, had been in several prisons. He'd been on a long ship trip. He'd been marooned on the island of Malta. He'd been traveling. And so what's probably going on is they just don't know where Paul is in order to be able to send help to him. 
What, what is happening is that he's got an uncertain travel schedule. The, the mail system in the area wasn't that reliable. And so the Philippians are probably going, we want to give to help and support Paul and his ministry, but we just have no idea where Paul is right now. We can't do anything. But finally, they get word that Paul is under house arrest, probably in Rome, and they send Epaphroditus with their generous gift. And this gift, it shows that they're still concerned. They're still thinking about Paul. Now, these are just the gifts that we know about. There could have been some other gifts as well. Now, given all the Philippians have done for Paul personally, but also to grow the kingdom of God, it seems odd that Paul does not say the words, thank you. Um, especially if you consider Paul's under house arrest. He's renting his own house. He's chained to a Roman guard, so he's got a a roommate he doesn't really want, but he's got to have there paying his rent. And and he needs to pay the rent, or they're going to throw him into a a dungeon or a prison cell, just not good circumstances. But Paul can't work, and so he's relying on other people to support him in that time. And so Paul is in need of, of support. But Paul does not grovel. He does not fawn over the Philippians and their gifts. He doesn't say, I don't know what I would do without you guys. You have saved me once again. You've, you've rescued me for the umpteenth time. Um, you're, 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 you're my saviors. He doesn't say anything like that. He expresses gratitude, but at the same time, he remains fiercely independent of the Philippians, not wanting them to think that he depends on them. And the question is, Why? Well, one reason might be, um, have you ever had a, a family member or a friend who, who as soon as you um, say something, they, they want to try and meet that need? That you have to be careful what you say to them, around them, that you don't accidentally convey some need or some want because they're going to try and meet it for you? The type of people where they come into the room and you're like, man, I like your jacket, those sneakers are awesome, and they're like, oh, you like them? Well, they're yours. And they, they give it to you. They're like, keep them. I'm, I'm serious. Or you go, man, my washing machine just broke this week. I don't have the money to be able to fix it. It's kind of annoying. Got to go to the laundromat type thing. I'm like, oh, man, that's too bad. A few hours later, they show up on your doorstep. I got you a top load or a front load. Not sure which one you wanted. You pick. We'll take the other one back. They just want to meet your needs because they care for you. Now, Paul knows that if he lets on that he has some sort of need or a want. This is what the Philippians are going to be like. Paul's in need. Okay, guys, we need to start taking up another collection, start passing the offering plate. We've got to help Paul out. And the reason is that Paul had brought the gospel to the Philippians, and they felt indebted to Paul that he brought the good news to him. And so they want to help him to meet his needs. But Paul does not want to let on that there's any need, that he depends on them, that he's asking for another gift He never wanted to burden the churches. And so knowing this, let's read verse 18 again. Paul says, I have received full payment, excuse me, and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. This is Paul's way of saying, um, I'm good. You owe me nothing more I have all that I need at this point, and actually some left over. And so Paul appreciates their generosity. It's not solely because it's 
to his own benefit, but he says that it's to their benefit as well, to the benefit of the Philippians. He says that uh, it has been credited to their account. Now, generous giving, it brings the blessing of sufficiency and the, the means to be able to give more. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 to 10, Paul writes this, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now understand that this promise to increase the harvest should not be understood solely or mainly in material terms, but in terms of increasing your righteousness and your fruitfulness. That God's promise is that he's going to use his people and their resources for, as instruments for the salvation of other people, to bring more people into the kingdom of God. But our giving, it also helps ensure that our hearts are in the right place. What is it Jesus says? Where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. And so we can look at this and go, you know what? The Philippians, their hearts are in the right place place. Now, the Philippians, they're not living in a culture that is, is like ours today. Most of the Philippians, they wouldn't be middle to upper class of society. They're living in an area that is experiencing grinding poverty because the area they're living in had experienced um, three civil wars. And so the whole area has been bought, brought to poverty so bad that the citizens, they, they go to Tiberius Caesar and they're like, could you lower our taxes? And he actually does it. Like, you know things are bad when Caesar looks in on your situation and goes, man, that is bad. I wouldn't want that. Let's lower your taxes. Let's, let's ease that burden. But on top of that, the Christians were actually probably more poor than the average um, citizen of the area because they were Christians. They were being persecuted for their faith and their allegiance to Jesus. And so what you see is that they may have lost jobs, property, and support, that their devotion to Jesus affected their bottom line. And so Paul is thinking of these Christians. He knows that they've sacrificed over and over again. And some of them may be thinking, you know what? We may be the ones in need here soon. That after giving such a large gift to support Paul and maybe some other things, they're going, we don't have a ton left over for ourselves. And so they might be worried. And Paul says, they have sacrificed. The Philippians, they, they don't give their leftovers to God. They give their best. They give more than what they can afford to give sometimes. They give beyond their means is what Paul has said before. And here we see that if we're sincere in our commitment to the Great Commission to see lost people saved, then our finances ought to back that commitment up. That as Christians, as disciples, there should be some things that we are willing to go without so that the kingdom of God can grow and flourish. We talked about this in the series. Whose kingdom are we trying to build? Are we trying to build our own kingdom, or are we trying to build the kingdom of God? We also talked about how um, God's grace is a free gift. Salvation is freely given, but the ministry that brings that news to people often costs 
money. And so verse 19 is meant to comfort the Philippians who may be worried. Paul says, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And by by saying, my God, Paul's making this very personal. He's saying the same God that meets my needs is going to meet your needs as well. He's he's a living testimony to that. Now, this is one of the the verses that Christians love to quote from Philippians 4, uh, verse 19. And the reason is that some Christians tend to view it as if God is handing them a blank check. That Paul is saying, um, God is infinitely rich and he's going to give you whatever you ask for or believe you need. And it's borderline like prosperity theology idea that God's main existence or main reason he exists is to meet our wants, to make us happy, wealthy, and healthy. Now you can ask anybody in my life group what I think of prosperity theology and they'll go, James absolutely hates it. Um, And the reason is because it leaves people devastated when it's played out. And this is not what Paul is trying to convey here. Um, There's no doubt that God can provide for our needs because he's infinitely rich. As, As creator, he owns everything. If you look up, go home, look up Psalm 50 verses 10 to 12. God says, it's mine. And so God's not going to try and meet a need and then discover, you know what, I can't do it because there's insufficient funds in my account. God's not going to experience that. But when we ask for something and we don't get it, sometimes we, we tend to question God's promises, his faithfulness, his goodness, his ability to provide. Maybe we even question our own faith. But maybe what we should really be questioning is our perception of need. In other words, maybe we need to redefine what it is we truly need. Now, there are those who will refuse to accept the fact that God might um, not give them what they want. They demand that God would deliver them from some need or adversity, and they're confused that God would not give them what they want or ask for, whether it's financial, occupational, something to do with their health. But, I mean, point to a chapter and verse where this is what God says He's going to do. I mean, if you read scripture, the overwhelming message is that God is working towards an end that is far greater, far more important than our our own personal agendas or comforts or anything like that. Now, what can happen is, is when we say, give me a chapter and verse, somebody will come back with the chapter and verse, but it's often taken out of context. And one of the ones that we love is Philippians 4.13, where Paul writes, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And it's, it's a beautiful verse. If you, if you surveyed Christians and you said, what's your favorite verse in all scripture? Chances are Philippians 4.13 would be one of the ones at the top. Uh, BibleStudyTools.com said that it was the fourth most visited and read verse of the year. But here's the thing. I don't think this verse would be near as popular as it is if people understood what Paul was saying when he originally wrote it. Now, I'll say newer translations have actually done a better job of conveying the meaning and the idea that Paul was trying to get across here. But the thing is, many of us have learned it and memorized it in these older translations and taken um, its meaning from those things. And so we hear, I can do all things, and we believe that it is telling us that through Christ's strength, we can escape 
or overcome any bad situation that we find ourselves in so that we do not have to endure the uncomfortable or the undesirable, but instead we will have that life we've always dreamed of. In some ways, it's become the Christian equivalent of, if I dream it, I can achieve it. And then we add that clause, in Christ, of course. That God is going to bless anything a Christian decides to do, that whatever we want to do, God will accomplish it for us because we've believed in faith, because we've claimed that promise. And so through Christ, we'll say, I can get that promotion that I want. He's going to give it to me, or I'm going to get a new job because my current job just sucks, and and Christ will do that for me. Um, We're going to be healed instantly, that that we see a dream home that we want way out of our price range, but we're going to believe and claim, and, and God's going to give that to us because that's what he does, that through Christ, he will give us our perfect soulmate, that through Christ, our temptations and our struggles are going to vanish instantly. I mean, the one that really gets me is when athletes or people are going into a game and they quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who give me strength. They're gonna, we're going to win that game, this game because, because Christ will empower us to do it. As if God is playing out the battle of good and evil on the sports field. Like that's where he's deciding things or something like that. And so it's often taken out of context. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about these things. And God does empower us to do things that are beyond our strength and things that are beyond our own abilities. But when we view this verse as Jesus being the key to unlocking our dreams and aspirations, we're viewing it wrong. Um, When we slap it on a mug or a bumper sticker to inspire us to achieve anything we put our minds to because God is going to help us do it, we're viewing it wrong. We hear this verse to take um, as an opportunity to take hold of God's infinite power to indulge ourselves to have an awesome life. And so if this verse, I want to ask you this question, if this verse means what we may think it means or what we want it to mean, that we're going to be able to escape any and all undesirable situations, that God's going to allow us to do anything we want to do, Would Paul's biography read the way it does? I mean, would Paul repeatedly be beaten, whipped, stoned, attacked, left for dead? Would Paul get shipwrecked three times? Would he be hated by so many people? Would he be cold, naked, hungry, thirsty as often as he did? Would Paul once again be under arrest, sitting in prison, waiting to hear his trial, writing a letter about his circumstances? Would Paul end up going to Rome, um, being beheaded as a martyr of Christ? Would the early church have suffered so much at the hands of its persecutors and been put to death if this verse means what we think it means or what we may want it to mean? And so what I'm trying to say is that we need to read these verses within their original context. And so we're going to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 again. Because Paul is saying, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives 
be strength. And so Paul's point is that contentment, like joy, like peace, does not come from outward circumstances, but it comes from Christ who gives us strength. That contentment or peace is not found in having a full belly, being totally healthy, having a full bank account, having a warm bed at night. Paul's saying that the poor, sick, homeless man can have more contentment, peace, and joy in their life than the wealthy, healthy person can have. So Paul wants the Philippians to understand that his contentment does not rest in the gifts that they're sending to him or the things that they think they need, but contentment is found in Christ alone. Now, this verse is probably one of the most misquoted and misinterpreted verses in all of Scripture. It means the opposite of what many people think it means. Paul nowhere says that God gives him everything he wants, circumstantial, material, financial, whatever it is. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, now I've got to go back to the Bible and find a new favorite verse because you've just destroyed this one for me. You are a jerk. Um, I can live with your disappointment. I'll, I'll be all right. But what I want us to understand is that this verse is far, what Paul's writing in this context is far better than any meaning we would try to give it. In life, there are those questions that we, we worry about. What if I get sick? What if my bank account is empty? What if I lose my job? What if I don't have a roof over my head? What if people hate me or abuse me? What if I'm forgotten about? What if I'm overlooked? What if I struggle with this temptation or this sin for the rest of my life? What if this thing, whatever it is, ends in my death? What if, fill in the blank with whatever fear you want to put in there. Now the church is there to meet one another's needs to the best of its ability. This is what the Philippians are doing for Paul. This is what we should do. We should strive to do the same thing. And also God meets our needs every day, often in normal everyday ways. The fact that you have a job is God's way of meeting your needs. We often fail to give him credit for that. But there are those times where God intervenes in miraculous ways that he meets our needs. But Paul knows that there are some needs that money, food, human companionship cannot meet, that earthly things do not offer contentment in every and all situations. Now, it's been said that if you live long enough, suffering will find you. Um, some of you have suffered. Some of you are, are going through a season of suffering right now. But we all know that until Christ returns, none of us are going to live forever. Um, despite our best efforts, our time is going to come. And so eventually technology or medicine or just people are going to let us down at some point. And in verse 12, Paul writes, I have learned the secret of living in every situation. And the idea he's getting at is that he's been initiated into this knowledge that through good times and bad times, he's gone through the process of learning what brings contentment, peace, and joy in any and every situation. Now, there are some things that you can't learn except through being initiated into that knowledge. Sometimes you can't experience or understand the peace that surpasses all understanding until you're in a situation where the only thing you have to rely on is that God is in control and that God is good and he is faithful and that he is loving. One of my favorite Psalms, uh, chapter 73, verse 26, the author says, my health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, 
but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. And Paul is saying, no matter the what if, he's content. Why? What need do you have that God has not ultimately met through the death of Christ on the cross? What need do you have that is bigger than Christ's victory over sin and death? Jesus has addressed the supreme need of humanity in his sacrificial and atoning death on the cross. And so Paul knows that whatever need may arise, whatever attack or affliction may come, the worst it can end in is death. Now you're going, death? That doesn't sound that enjoyable. That doesn't sound that good. I think you're underestimating what you're saying there. But understand, in reality, death is the worst thing that Satan or the world can threaten us with. And Jesus has already conquered it. That the enemy's greatest weapon has been rendered ineffective. And so Paul is not living with a temporary earthly mindset, but with one that is set on heaven, on eternity. He's looking beyond his present circumstances. He's being comforted by the Spirit in that moment. And if you want to live with peace, contentment, joy in every situation and any situation. You have to have your mind set on things above. We have to understand that the world is not our home. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. And so we can be content in any situation because no matter how it plays out, we know how it's going to end that sin and death have been defeated. We have hope. In a Christian story, it never ends in hardship, suffering, or trial, but it always ends in heaven. And this is why Paul says, to live is Christ, but to die is far better. To die is gain. I've talked about a young man named Jared Mitchell before. Um, And just over a year ago, at age 15, Jared... Um, passed away and went home to be with the Lord after battling cancer for several years. And and Shannon and I knew his family. They were ministering at a church down in Weymouth. We kind of got to know them through that. And so they'd be up at the IWK uh, while Jared was receiving treatments. And so we would go down and and visit with them. And Jared was just one of these guys that was um, incredible. Like even in the midst of that, he had such faith and hope. But then the news came um, that, that Jared would not recover, and it was a sad and a difficult time. But what was amazing is that in that time, um, Jared was still hopeful and praising God. He was confident that when this season ended, he was going home to be with his Lord. And when Jared did pass, it was a very hard time. Um, it, was, it was sad for many people, especially his parents, can't imagine having to go through that. But even in that, that, that season of mourning, and it, it's still going on, we don't get over it like that as Christians, but even in it, they remain joyful and content in that time of mourning, knowing that one day they're going to see Jared again. They know that because Jesus conquered sin and death, they're going to see their son again one day in heaven. And there are some things that only faith in Jesus and the knowledge that he's conquered sin and death are going to get us through. 
that we have an eternal hope in those times that would otherwise be hopeless. And in those moments, the Holy Spirit reminds us of the hope and the promise that await those in Christ, that all things are going to be made right again. And so being able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us is not the key to escaping those difficult circumstances, but is the key to enduring them. That we know how this ends. That no matter how it ends, death has no victory, death has no sting. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says this personally to the church in Smyrna. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so I don't know what situations or needs that everyone in this room is facing right now, but know this, that in Christ you do not face the situation alone or in your own strength, but that God is with you and that God is for you. And that this difficult season, whatever it is, is, is going to be but a footnote in eternity. Because for the Christian, we know that the best is always yet to come.